Good morning, everyone. All righty. Well, let's begin with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come, part, and study. We ask that your spirit will be with us this morning, enlightening our minds, your angels will worship with us, and that it will all be for your glory. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And we are doing lesson number four in our quarterly discipleship. And the title for our lesson this week is Lessons from Would-Be Disciples. And if someone would read the memory text for us, please. Another said... I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, No one puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And when you hear that, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, uh, what do you think that means? Okay, you better watch where you're going. You don't know what you're doing. Okay, I like that interpretation a lot. I think that might be key. You have, the, to have a goal. You have to keep your eyes on Jesus. Your eyes on Jesus. So it doesn't mean that uh, if if you've accepted Christ and you and you pull back, then you've lost your one chance. You've got a chance. Go now, or else, or it's your chance is going to pass you by. If you plow and you let go of the plow, what happens? If you're plowing and you let go of the plow, what happens? Okay, I think you guys are exactly right. Uh, how well can you plow if you're looking backwards? How well can you drive if you're focused only in the rearview mirror? Yeah, you see, you don't end up, and I think that's probably what it means. Have you ever heard it interpreted differently? Yeah. How have you heard it interpreted differently? Well, like you said first, that's what you've taken Christ, accepted Christ, you come back. Yeah, so have you ever heard that? Uh, I've heard that. You know, this text is used to say, you know, those who have accepted Christ and have somehow maybe slipped away or turned back, that they're, they're not fit uh, for the kingdom of heaven and, and they can't come back and they've got your one chance. Um, I don't think any of us believe that. What evidence do you have that would actually show that interpretation to be wrong? Evidence from Scripture that would show that interpretation to be wrong? Peter. Peter's a great example, exactly right. Peter is a great example. He denied Christ three times, yet he came back. How about, pardon? David. David's another good example. Exactly. When we look at these life examples, this is how we, we, we discern the meaning of the word, because if we have a theory, we want to compare it to the evidence, not just the, the, the claim statements of Scripture. The claim statements of Scripture are the ones like, God is love. God is love is a claim statement. It's not actually evidence. Evidence is the life of Christ, his giving himself for us. That's actually evidence of God's character revealed in action. And so when we have the, the statements like the statement from Christ, you can't, you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven, and somebody interprets that, well, that means this other thing, we then look at the evidence of what actually happens, and we say, well, no, no, that can't mean that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. The Good News translation, by the way, of, of Luke 9.62 says this, Jesus said to him, anyone who starts to plow and then keeps looking back is of no use to the kingdom of God. Well, that makes it a little plainer, doesn't it? Yeah, no use, because we're, we're not plowing in the right direction. We're not working in harmony with keeping our eyes fixed on Christ. One of the founders of our church, in Three Testimonies, page 500, wrote this. And Jesus said unto him, no man, having put his hand to the plow and, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. No earthly ties, no earthly considerations should weigh one moment in the scale against duty to the cause and work of God. Jesus severed his connection from everything to save a lost world, and he requires of us full and entire consecration. There are sacrifices to be made for the interest of God's cause. The sacrifice of feeling 
is the most keen that is required of us. Yet, after all, it is a small sacrifice. What do you think that means, the sacrifice of feeling is the most keen required of us? Yes? God made us intelligent beings. He wants us to reason. Yes, absolutely. You bet he does. That's why we call our class, Come and Reason. You bet. Wonderful. But what does this mean, the sacrifice of feeling is the most keen? How does that apply to the, the text, the hand, putting the hand to the plow and looking back? Because it'll, there'll be good times and bad times, but you can't go with the emotional sway. You just have to have a purpose and keep with that purpose, not be swayed by your emotions. Have people ever been convinced of a particular duty they need to carry out, and out of a sense of obligation, they pursue that course, but their heart is not in it? They required maybe to give something up for the Lord, whatever it might be, a habit, a person, a position, a job. They know they're supposed to, but their heart feelings really don't want to. And if they're not willing to make that sacrifice, they, they do it, but in their heart they never sever those feelings, they never deal with those feelings, they never sacrifice the feelings. They continue to embellish the longing for whatever it is that they've given up. What's going to happen over time? They may lose interest in their commitment to the Lord. They'll rebel. They'll rebel. Will, will their heart actually, if they're, if they're holding their feelings on to whatever it was, you know, they, they gave up a particular unhealthy relationship. They gave up an, a habit of sorts or whatever it might be, an addiction of some kind. And in their heart, they long and pine away for that and, and maybe even are angry that God would require that they give that up. You know this happens, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, if that is the feelings that persist over time, do they actually ever open their heart fully to the Holy Spirit? No. no. Or do those feelings keep the heart closed? And if they never really open the heart fully, then can God really do the work in them that he wants to do? So the sacrifice of feelings, a keen work, is it painful sometimes to, to, to make those decisions, to move in the direction that go against things we've become attached to. Does that mean it's bad for us? What can help us in those times to to be able to to make those decisions, to move in the healthy direction when our feelings don't want to? Commitment. Commitment. There's something wrong with our relationship. What what I find helps many of my patients is is a, a change in understanding or perspective or a, a greater appreciation for the truth. For instance, if any of you have ever had to go to the dentist or to physical therapy, uh, most of the time those experiences don't feel good. But our perspective, our understanding, allows us to have a sense of confidence or a sense of peace. Uh, even though it doesn't feel good in the experience, we have a sen- a- another feeling of confidence or peace that it's the right thing because our understanding of the course of action is the healthy course of action. And so sometimes what's needed is to explore why it is we're so attached to this thing. What is it we believe that we're really losing in this circumstance? And you'll find that not only is there a feeling in the matter, but there's some idea in there, some belief that, that we're giving up something good and we're not getting something better in return. What helps yes. me is being totally honest with God about it. I don't want to give it up right now. I love it. You know, whether it's coffee drinking or eating bacon, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> I love it. Just be honest with God about it, and I think you 
you're a lot more open to be able to deal with it. I think that's an incredibly powerful point. Being honest with God is absolutely essential. David get, modeled that for us. We have the evidence of David. You know, David prays, you know, I hate these people. Just kill them. Kill their babies too. <laughs> but Lord, search me and uh, see any wicked way in me. <laughs> Christy. We're looking at sacrifice of feelings as things that we don't want to give up or, you know, things we're attached to. But this hit me because of something I'm struggling with right now is sacrifice of feelings of, of fear that I can't do something mm-hmm. or things that I know need to be done, but I don't think I'm the right person to do it. But when I look at the end goal, the only thing that that um, helps me really try to do it is to think it's the good for the you know God's kingdom. It's it's a purpose greater than my daily life, and I'm just going to have to do it whether I'm afraid to do it or not. So. Well, I think that's a wonderful insight. Yes, yeah, sometimes have you ever been in a situation where you have been asked or called to do a particular task and you have feelings of insecurity, feelings of fear, feelings of doubt, and those feelings may paralyze you from doing a, a work for the Lord. And so those feelings have to be sacrificed as well. Yes? Um, I'd just like to make a comment because you know, I think this is a common experience to all of us and we, we have this happen. And my testimony is when we do what God asks us to do, within a very short time, I say, God, why did I wait so long? This is so much better than what I had before. And I think that's a more, to me, that's a much more common thing than a longing for something that was harming me in the past. Yeah, you know, that's a, I think, have, have we all not all had that experience? Mm-hmm. I think that's true. Do we forget that experience the next time we find one of those places where our feelings are in the way? Yeah. We often forget to re- to remember how the Lord has delivered in the past. And, yeah, yeah. would be, you know, when I had my first child, and you know, two weeks, she's two weeks old, and I am exhausted, and I get up at five for the third or fourth time that night, and you think, why did I ever have this baby? But you know that that's not the feelings that are appropriate. Right, right. Oh, excellent. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yes. But if you don't really truly agree with the value that of what you're getting, then it, it takes away the opportunity to brag about how uh, wonderful you are by giving up these terrible things. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and that's a feeling of a different sort, isn't it? <laughs> and it says in James 1.13 that no one should say God tempts, because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil feelings or desires. So we have this vulnerability, we all do, within us, that uh, fear is one of the big ones that, that, that pulls us in various directions. Somebody read the bottom two paragraphs, starting, probably though. Probably though, of all things mysterious and hard to fathom, nothing is more so than the workings of the human heart. People, in an instant, for reasons that seem so unknowable, perhaps even to themselves, make decisions that can impact their lives in a dramatic way for the good or bad, for all eternity. No wonder that scripture, when talking about the heart, says, who can know it? This week we will look at some of the would-be disciples and the decisions of their hearts. Thoughts about that? When the Bible talks about the heart, what is it talking about? 
I'm glad that we had such an uh, overwhelming consensus on that. Do you know there's actually a debate going on now? Some new theorists and new researchers are actually putting forth uh, articles in the literature and public speaking programs, even in Adventist circles that I've heard recently, where they are saying that the pump in the chest is what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the heart. And that uh, because the, I think you all know that the pump in your chest has some nerve cells on it that control the rhythm of your heart, you know, the, the beating of your heart, the electrical rhythm of your heart. They can take an EKG and see that. Some people say, see, there's these, these nerve cells in the heart. It's a second brain. Seriously. This is, this is going on. Are there physicians that are saying that? He said it was on Adventist television. Are, the, are those physicians that are saying that? Uh, cardiologists? From uh, I don't think cardiologists are saying this. <laughs> I haven't heard any cardiologists yet, but I've, uh, PhDs, psychologists, and some uh, physiologists are, are suggesting this. Uh, and what they're suggesting is that they've been able to read EM fields, EM fields, electromagnetic fields put out by your body. And you understand any electrical system puts out an EM field. Okay, electromagnetic field. The Earth has an electromagnetic field around it because of the uh, electrical uh, properties of the Earth. But the heart, having electrical activity, puts out an EM field, and it's more powerful than the EM field put out by your brain. And a lot of people are saying that, that because of this, that your heart is, is connected and can feel and interact on these EM field levels with other people. And even if that were true, and I'm not actually discounting the fact there not, might not be some sense that you can pick up from somebody on this line. But if you can, it's just an, another sense. It's like vision, hearing, taste, sight, smell. If, if it actually is real and is documented, you have some ability to somehow sense somebody else's mood because of this. If that can be documented. And No, it wouldn't be the same thing. And, and, I'm, not even, and I'm not even sure it's true. But if it is true, it's still nothing more than another sense to perceive information, which is processed where? In the brain. In the brain. So it still comes back to the brain processing the information. And so when we read in the Bible about the heart, don't get confused about it being a pump, especially with some of the new theories coming along. It's really talking about the mind. And within the mind, we have various aspects of our mind, don't we? And which part of the mind do you think the heart is referring to here? Sometimes the Bible says... Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And in Romans 2.29, circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written word. And as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So we have these, these references to the heart, but we really do, it does mean the mind. Does it mean more, though, than just the ability to think thoughts? <clears throat> Reasoning. Yes, right. yes. recognize, it doesn't mean that deeper part where your heart attachment is. And think about what are heart attachments. Well, young people in the room, or maybe some of us older folks, uh, you've been working a long time uh, saving money to buy, buy your dream car. And you finally have enough to go buy your, your brand new BMW. And you are so excited. It's, it's gorgeous. Uh, it's, you know, seven series. I mean, it's really nice. And you go, uh, and you go want to show all your friends uh, your, your car. So you go to their place of employment, and you run in to get them. And, and, and as they come out on their break to see your car, there's another one in the parking lot just like yours. But it's not yours. And it has a big dent in the side. You might pause have a second. That's too bad. Let me show you my wheels. But if you come out and your new car has a big dent in the side, does it feel different? <laughs> uh, uh, 
what happened to my car? Okay, that's an example of our heartstrings, our feelings of attachment. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Be careful what you become attached to, because it's the power to pull on you. Okay, that's what it's talking about. Uh, circumcision of the heart, cutting away those, those powerful attachments to things that are unhealthy and establishing those attachments to godly things and things of God's kingdom. Other thoughts or questions about that? Why did the Lord, in the scriptures, why did he allow people to call it the heart instead of the mind? Why didn't he just call it the mind? I find that the scripture is never really a dictation from God that he allows them to use their words to express the concepts as they best know how to express them. Doesn't he? Throughout most of Scripture. We only have, I think the only place we have a written, written record of how God expresses things is the Ten Commandments. Even the testimony of Christ that we have written in the Gospels are the recorded memories of the people who heard his testimony. It's not actually Christ dictated to them and they took down dictation, is it? No. Well, then in the original, was the heart... The same as the mind? In their, the heart? In, their, in the Bible, basically everything is, I think, what is it said, about 12 inches, uh, you need 12 inches of elevation. So if it says the heart, you elevate it 12 inches and you're in the mind. <laughs> and if it says the bowels, you elevate it 12 inches and you're in the heart. Okay? And, and that's really, that really is kind of the way the Bible has got it described. I think the, the, uh, the, there's uh, the splankna. The splankna is like Greek for the bowels, and that's uh, translated in some versions. Uh, uh. I think throughout time, though, we've always looked at the heart as, as our feelings, even though they're really coming from here. A lot of people will say, oh, I really love you, and they'll put their hand over their heart unknowingly because that's where their feelings are, but really they're up here. Oh, I really love you. <laughs> well, let's talk about the reason for that. The mind is, is deeply wired into the body. And so when you feel nervous, when you feel anxious, when you feel worried, when you feel tense, do you feel any changes in your innards? Do you feel your stomach churn in? Do you feel your heart picking up a little bit? Okay, yes. And so people feel it in here, and so they think it's their heart, but it's coming from here uh, through the, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. Coming from the brain is where it's actually happening. Is and, that same thing true? Is the Bible, when it says, don't look back, and Sister White says, you know, we should not study our past. Well, actually, there's the statement. We have nothing to fear for the future, save... We forget where the Lord has led in the past. Okay, So we are to remember the past, but we don't have the heart set on the past. And this, this position is, and I have patients who long and pine away for their past. It's often because there's something in their past that meant something to them. A relationship broke up, a death of a loved one. I had a patient who had a child die. Ten years later, they referred to see me. Every day for basically the ten years, they got up went into the child's room, got the child's teddy bear, curled up in the child's bed, and cried. They didn't do anything. They, didn't, they had other children. They weren't involved in the other children's life at all. Okay? They were looking in the rear view. They were constantly pining away for something in the past rather than moving forward in their life. Is there a balance in this where it is good? It, it is good to, to remember our past for the benefit of how we're moving forward in the future taking those lessons of the past and use those lessons of the past to inform us for the decisions as we're moving forward into the future. Yes, we would be very foolish not to learn lessons from our past, wouldn't we? Yeah, so it's not a, a blindness here. If we look at Sunday's lesson, it talks about uh, Matthew uh, 8, 19, and 20. Somebody read that for us. 
Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Why would Jesus respond? Here comes somebody, you know what? You are the man. I will follow you everywhere. I want to be your follower. And Jesus says what he says here. Got nothing. Got nothing, man. Why does Jesus say this? Don't come after me for things. Don't come after me for things. What? Because Jesus knew his heart. It wasn't a sincere thing. It wasn't that he was really wanting to follow Jesus. He wasn't willing to give everything up. And I mean, are you willing to give everything up and have no home? Not even a place to lay your head? Was it factually true Jesus had no place to lay his head? Or was he saying he owned, owned no place? Well, yeah. I mean, he didn't have a home. He didn't have his own place. Okay. Yes. I think maybe, too, sometimes from the outside, things are glamorous, but then when you actually do the hard work, it's like, this isn't what I got myself into. And, you know, Mark Finley seems like he has a great job, but he's on the road probably most of the year, and I'm not sure I'd want to do that and be away from my family. So. You, know, you know, when you were describing that, it looks good on the outside, but it's not always cracked up to when you get in. I, you know, I think of many of my patients who have come to see me with their marriage problems. Boy, it looks so good until I got married. Oh, it's, it's not really what it was cracked up to be at all. Yeah, because they didn't choose wisely. They didn't choose wisely, and things are really bad. So I think that's true, yeah. I think that's what another thing that Christ is trying to say. For you, don't make a hasty decision. Think it through. Think of the consequences. And is this really what you want to do? Make an informed decision. I think about the context here is everyone was expecting an earthly king. Mm-hmm. Life was going to be good when Christ you know, asserted himself as king. Yeah, I, lo- I, lo- I think that's a great insight. Do you think Christ was trying to suggest to him what kind of kingdom Christ was coming to promote? And trying to make a distinction between what their expectations were. I'll follow you anywhere because we're going we're gonna to throw out the Romans, we're going to end up in the palaces of Rome, we're going to rule the world, we're going to have all this cool stuff. And Jesus said, look, we're not going to have any of that stuff. That's not what we're about here. And do you think he was trying to draw a distinction? So, what is the kingdom that Christ came to promote? Self-sacrifice and love. Love, truth, freedom. The big three. The kingdom of love, the kingdom of truth, the kingdom of freedom. Those are the things Christ came to promote. At the end of time, there are going to be two groups. Those who value Christ's kingdom, sometimes referred to as the remnant, and those who value Satan's kingdom sometimes referred to as the beast system. And those who value Christ's kingdom will live the truth presented in love, leaving people free. And those who value the beast system will present whatever their concepts are with coercive pressure to conform, lest you can neither buy nor sell, save you have the mark of the beast. You see, the two systems, the methodologies are completely different. And we're looking forward to that time right now. Yes? And I think an important distinction to draw here, too, in what you're saying, um, Christ was promoting an internal kingdom coming from the inside out. They were looking for an external kingdom. Excellent. From the outside in. Absolutely, absolutely. In Mark, as we move down the lesson, in Mark 10, 29, and 30, it says, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brother or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. A hundred times more. 
Now read the bottom green section on the on Sunday's lesson for us, somebody. How do we understand what is happening with this scribe and with, for instance, Christ's words in Mark 10.30? Are we not now promised some immediate advantage in following Jesus now? If so, then why is it wrong to want those advantages? So the question, what are the hundredfold advantages that Christ promised? Well, the major one is peace. When you have peace in your life, you can deal with all the things that happen in a much greater way. I mean, if you're, t- if you're always upset, always stressed, always, how do you deal with things? But when you follow Christ, you have peace of heart. I agree with you. It's part of the kingdom, that peace. But it, it gave some specifics here in the, in the passage about leaving, leaving material things, and we get a hundredfold more. So is, is the gospel of you know, material blessings the right gospel? If you just took my life today and gave me eternal life, same as I have, is that not more than a hundredfold blessing? So the kingdom, what kingdom are we pursuing if we're pursuing Christ's kingdom? The kingdom of truth, love, and freedom. So if we apply those, those kingdom principles to our life now, how does the truth, if you're a truth lover, if you're a lover of the kingdom of truth, so you're pursuing truth in every avenue of your life, no matter where you go, you're always pursuing truth, how does that make your life better here now? If you're a lover of the truth, a person who's therefore valuing God's kingdom, would you, ha- would you apply truth to the way you live your lifestyle? Would you apply truth on the foods that you eat and the things that you drink and the things you put in your body? Not because it, you better or else God will punish, but because you're a person who loves truth and you recognize, you know, it's, it's true that if I brush my teeth, they stay healthier. I'm going to apply that truth to my life. You know, it's true if I don't smoke, my, my lungs are, are healthier. I'm going to apply that truth to my life. It's true that if I, and on down the line you go. If you live in the kingdom of God, applying truth as you know it to your life, do you reap real benefits here and now? Yes, real benefits, a hundred times more, a hundredfold more. How about um, in relationships? When you're dating somebody, do you approach those relationships with a lover of the truth? So that as they reveal their character to you, you take that evidence and make decisions on it, and thus you steer clear of those unhealthy, dysfunctional folks? Or do you ignore the evidence because the feelings are so strong in the matter? Oh, he really didn't mean that. She, didn't, she, she wouldn't treat me like that. She may lie to everybody else, but she wouldn't lie to me. If we take the evidences and apply that truth, if we apply that truth, truth in our decisions and relationships, do we have healthier relationships? Is that a blessing? A hundredfold blessing. <laughs> yes, it can be. It is, absolutely. How about in our finances? If we live the truth and apply truth in our financial decisions and business decisions, does it reap benefits for us if we're living in the kingdom of God? You see, these are not ethereal things that, that, that we get rewards for sometime later. God's methods, God's principles, when understood and applied to the life here and now, reap real benefits here and now, don't they? Sure. How about the, the kingdom of love? When we act and apply the principles of love, which are the principles of beneficence, the principles of compassion, the principles of giving, the principles of, of, of selfless interest in others, what are the consequences when we live within the kingdom of love, what happens to us? Empowering. Empowering. 
Does something happen to our minds when we live in, within the bounds of truth, freedom, and love? What happens to our minds? Clear conscience. Clear conscience. What else? Internal peace, you've already suggested. Okay. How about our ability to discern? Hebrews chapter 5, 14. The mature Christians are those who have grown up through practice, have developed the ability to discern the right from the wrong. They can problem solve. They can think things out clearly. Their discerning and discriminating capacities grow stronger. Is that a real benefit to your life here and now? Yes. These are real benefits. How about people who live outside the bounds of God's law? They exploit others. They take advantage. They're self-centered. They're narcissistic. They will stomp on people to get their way. What happens to their minds? Yes, they're damaged, and there's real reasons for that. You see, when we do wrong to people, we've all experienced this. Have you ever done wrong and had your conscience convict you of guilt? How do you like that feeling? So you want that feeling to go away? Yes, and there's two ways to make it go away. There's the God way, which is repentance and restoration, seeking to make amends and restore the damage which you've caused, and experiencing God's regenerating spirit in your life as you, you experience a change of heart. And then you have peace again with God and with others. Or there's the other way. Denial and projection. It wasn't me. It was that woman you gave me, God. If she wouldn't have brought me that food, I I didn't do one thing. I was over here minding my business, doing my gardening like you told me to do. And here she comes. And we we deny our own culpability. And we try to blame somebody else. What is that doing to our reasoning powers? We're bending and twisting our minds to no longer be able to perceive and understand truth. Does that have a real consequence to our lives here and now? Yes. So God promised us real benefits a hundredfold. Those real benefits are tangible and they're real. But they're not what a lot of people think because a lot of people have this conception of God's kingdom that God's kingdom is an arbitrary kingdom. He has rules and he is the grand arbiter of his rules and those who obey his rules, he hands out rewards like the, uh, uh, the, the judge at the state fair. And you get the rewards handed out for how good you do, and those who don't do good get their punishments handed out. And that's how they see the kingdom of God. Is that the kingdom of God? No, God's kingdom, God's laws, when you obey them, have built-in inherent natural rewards to them, don't they? Don't they? And when you disobey them, they have built-in inherent natural consequences. You see, the other, there's these two Gospels that we talk about all the time. That punitive legal justice system where God arbitrarily inflicts punishment on the not good and rewards on the righteous. And we're constantly trying to earn His benevolence, earn His gifts, His handouts, the crumbs from His table. Versus the reality that we understand God and we open the heart to Him, allow His Spirit to regenerate us, and we begin walking in the ways He's designed naturally we begin reaping benefits that come automatically to that way of living. The kingdom of God and uh, the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's right, and exactly the kingdom and the kingdom of God is within you. That's exactly right. And Jesus said to them, showing, uh, this is the text to kind of affirm the idea that there are these natural consequences that come automatically on either side. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats the flesh and drinks the blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. What does the flesh and blood symbolize? The life 
the character, the methods, the principles of God, His very nature. We become partakers of His nature. When that happens, automatic things happen. When we partake of Him, we experience transformation and eternal life. When we don't, we're already dead. It's not inflicted. It's consequential. All right, Monday's lesson. Somebody read Matthew 8, 21 and 22. Now the disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Does that sound kind of harsh? Uh-huh. <laughs> Never liked it, no. Let the dead bury their dead. There's a couple ways to interpret this. The lesson interprets it as saying, basically, the man's father is not dead. He's saying, hey, you know, I'll follow you once my father dies and I take care of liquidating his estate. But I've got to go home. I don't know when he's going to die. It could be a year. It could be 25 years. But whenever he dies, and then I inherit his estate, and I can liquidate his assets, then I'll be willing to follow you. That's what, that's what some, I said some people interpret it that way. The lesson quarterly interprets it that way. I don't understand how he came up with that. Yeah. Um, and if that were the case, I think you could see the problem with that mindset. Because that's an excuse for any uh, approach. Hey, uh, follow me. Well, you know, I've got these things to take care of first. I'll be glad to do it, but let me take care of my business. Once I take care of my business, then I'll, I'll come. Well, there are cultures in which a man, a grown man, does not disobey his father. I'm, I'm thinking of a in Nepal where my aunt and uncle were working, and they had a young, a young man that went to school, and he said, I cannot become a Christian because my father will not allow me to become a Christian. Mm-hmm. And, and do- After his father died, he allowed his son to become a Christian, but he himself... Had to, you know, he, that family tie was very strong for him. Yes, I think that's that's something that may be at work here as well. And and in understand that kind of cultural constraint. And even with within culture, though, is is that a reasonable excuse? No. No, I think we can understand maybe the pull, but I think the the message would still be: wait a minute, that's not right. Uh, that that there's something more. We have a loyalty or devotion to someone before our family, don't we? You know, the first and greatest commandment is? Lord your God. And the second is? Neighbor. Neighbor as yourself. Where does, where does a parent fall? Neighbor. Neighbor or God category? Neighbor. How about your spouse? Where does a spouse fall? Neighbor. Yeah, closest neighbor. You know, I have a lot of patients that get confused on that point. I actually have patients, when I, when I put that to them and ask, where does your spouse fall? Some of them go with the God category. Yes? Um... I can't remember the text, but of course there's the example of when Jesus was speaking for our congregation and his mother and brothers were outside and they told him, Jesus, your mother and brothers are waiting outside. And he said, well, he who hears my word, something like that. And obeys, yes, it follows me. Yeah. My mother, my brother, sister. That's right, exactly right, exactly, great point, yes. Um, I was just reading in the sidelines, and it was just talking about maybe it's his insincerity, you know, about his subject, like saying that he wants to follow, you know, Christ. But he was using his circumstances of where he was at as an excuse to put off, like, devoting his life to God, you know. Like, and I think a lot of times we do that, like, we're just, well, we have things that we need to take care of right now, and then put it off, you know what I'm Exactly. Exactly. That's what they're suggesting in the lesson. Now, there's danger on the side here of allowing ties to family to divert us from our responsibilities to God. Is there a ditch on the other side where we are so committed to the cause of God and the church that we neglect our families? 
Christ called the Pharisees on that very subject. Yes, and we don't want to be in that ditch either. Uh, to live the godly life entails taking care and dealing with appropriate family responsibilities, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, and that, that is part of living that. We don't, want to, we don't want to lose that balance as we look at that. Tuesday's lesson, Mark 10, 17 through 23. This is about the um, man who ran up to him on his knees and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud or honor, and honor your mother and father. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since a boy. Jesus looked at, looked at him and, and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the people all said, and the disciples said, well then, who can be saved? Well, you know what he said? It's, it's easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. The people said, well then, who can be saved? Why would they say that? That was their, where they were. It was a cultural <laughs> paradigm. The, the Pharisees were the upstanding and, and often the wealthiest people that they knew. And they were the ones that they held up as as righteous. Yes. They believed that um, if you were righteous, if you were good, then you would have blessings forever. And if you were sick or ill or hurt, then it must be because you sinned. Exactly. Their construct. Now, if you're healthy and wealthy, then you're in right standing with God. The wealth was a sign. It was an external proof that you, in fact, were in good standing with God. This is their belief system. So when Christ said, give up your wealth, he's saying, give up the evidence that you're in good standing with God. So what is the real problem here? Is the real problem that this... Because this story is often told about people who love money more than they love God. I think that is, I think that is incorrect. I think it is incorrect. And I don't even think it's even about outward show. I think it's about the picture of God someone holds. You see, they held a picture of God that would do these types of things, that would curse bad people with, with, with sickness and, 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 and economic hardship. And if you work really hard and do all the right things, and God arbitrarily hands out wealth and health. Okay, this is their construct of God. And so... I think that was the root problem, that this Pharisee, this young rich ruler, uh, had this construct of God, and he said, well, how can I give up these blessings that God has given me and then somehow you know, turn my back on God? If he had the right construct of God as revealed in Christ, then would he have had a different relationship to his material wealth? But you know, that's a common uh, understanding that's preached across the country today in the gospel of prosperity. Is it practiced in Adventism? I've actually had a Jewish fellow say that uh, Christians, Christians have a hard time with their wealth. When they get wealthy, they feel guilty and have to give lots of wealth to charitable organizations. But we Jews know that when, when we have wealth, it's because God wants us to have it. <laughs> That's Joel Osteen's thing. God favors those. Yes. In the sound of music, when the um, female leaves, finds out that she is actually um, going to get to marry the prince 
um, she <laughs> sings a song about I must have done something good. <laughs> Maria. Yes, she must have, huh? Tim. Yes. Don't you think also Christ was getting at, he felt that salvation came by keeping the rules. And so he said, all right, if you think that's the way you get salvation, I have one more rule for you to keep. And that rule he couldn't keep. And so keeping the rules, he was trying to tell him, is not the way to get salvation. You have to live the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Uh, that's a great point. And he, and he also started down that path when he said, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good, and that is God in heaven. Now, was Christ then, and some, some critics of Christ will say, see, here's Christ admitting that he was not the Son of God, that he was not good, that he was not the Messiah. Some will use this text, Christ's own words, to say that, that he's admitting this. Was Christ admitting that? No. no. Are you ready to say that I am God? Well, exactly. He said, because remember, the young man came and said, good teacher. And he's challenging him. Why do you call me good? Only God in heaven is good. Are you saying that you recognize me as God on earth? This was the challenge to the young man. And you notice the young man didn't say, well, well, I call you good because you are God in the flesh. You are, you are the embodiment of all that the Father is. You and Father are one. That's why I call you good. The, the young man didn't do that, did he? You see, and if he had done that, I think Christ would have said you know, something different than what he said to him. Yeah. So he called him on that for that same reason, to recognize something different about who Christ was. And I think there was some part of this man that his conscience, the Holy Spirit was working on his conscience. He didn't have peace. He was doing all the rules. He had all this external wealth that was signs in his, in his current understanding that he was right with God. But he didn't have that internal peace. And so he was coming to Christ who was doing all these miracles. This, this person who, who with a crowd was following as one who evidently was really tight with the Lord. And he was coming to Christ, I think, to get Christ to say, you're, you're okay, man. You, you, you're where it's at. You, you, you've got the right relationship. You go on home. He's wanting to ease his own conscience to get Christ's blessing. And instead, he had, uh, I think, his conscience pricked a little further. It's interesting also to note that when Christ said, riches aren't going to get you in heaven, and then it's, you have to give up all these things. And decide, well, we've done that, so what's in it for us? It was still not getting the real picture. And the kingdom of God is the kingdom of truth, love, freedom. And so when we look at that kingdom, are we in danger today of doing the same thing that the rich young ruler was doing? But maybe not with money. Could we do it with other things? Hey, I haven't eaten a piece of meat in 37 years. (laughs) Never had caffeine? Are we putting our security in things that are misplaced. Hmm. I keep the Sabbath every week. Oh, and we know only Sabbath keepers are going to heaven, right? That's very clear. Yeah. And, uh, and for anybody who is uh, not a Seventh-day Adventist, we were not being serious there. So don't, don't, don't suggest that we're actually... For the Internet audience. For the Internet audience, yes. Yes, that was satire, yes, please. Okay. Yes, but we can fall into that same danger, the same arrogance, that same sense of self-focus, can't we, with different issues. Yeah. Well, in Wednesday's lesson, we're talking about Nicodemus' visit. Nicodemus' visit with Jesus. This is a, uh, I think we're all familiar with this visit, but um, maybe we should just read it. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. 
And if everybody just looks to John 3, starting in verse 1, and, and we'll... Uh, well, who would like to start? We just kind of go around the room until we read through 21 verses. So we'll get 21 people. You start right here, and we'll just move right around the room. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. One night he went to Jesus and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher sent by God. No one could perform the miracles you're doing unless God were with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. A person is born physically of human parents, but is born spiritually of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked? The wind blows wherever it pleases you, hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. <clears throat> Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that anyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his Son to condemn the world, but to save the world. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And this is the condemnation. The light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that when he has done that what he has done has been done through God. Powerful stuff in this passage. I don't know, just great stuff for this whole section here. Um, I guess first question, Jesus said to him, no one can see the kingdom of God except he is born again. What, what does it mean to be able to see the kingdom of God? Understanding. It means understanding, comprehension, right? Experience. Experience it. Experience the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is the kingdom of? Love. The kingdom of love, truth, freedom. That's again. And so if you, unless you've been regenerated, unless the Holy Spirit's come in to open your mind, to bring these realities to your understanding, you can't even see what the kingdom of God looks like. So unless you've come into this new regenerating experience, the kingdom of God is, is foreign to you. Does this help us mean 
understand what it means to be born again. Understanding what the kingdom of God is, that you can't see it unless you're born again. Does it help us understand what it means to be born again? Yes. I have trouble with 18, verse 18. And my Bible says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed. And someone else has said judge. And I don't know. No, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, let's, let's, let's finish this question, then we'll go straight to that. Uh, no, that's okay, because that was exactly where we were going, because that's the point, the key point. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of truth, love, freedom. Uh, to be born again means to have new motives, new methods, new principles, new values, new appreciation, so that you no longer operate on the principles of fear and self-centeredness and self-promotion and self-exaltation. You now operate on the principles of truth, uh, love for others, beneficence, giving. You've had a change in value system. That's what it means to be born again, doesn't it? Yeah, to be recreated in heart, so you value different things and, and prefer different things. You have different motivations. Now, with that in mind, uh, the, the text. Read the text again. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Okay, how do you all understand that passage? Remember, there's two ways. We have two models. Model number one, the law has been broken. Breaking the law requires a just arbiter of justice to inflict penalties and condemn to death all those who have broken the law. And thus, those who have broken the law all stand condemned by the arbiter of justice of the universe unless they accept someone who's made a payment on their behalf who was not guilty and paid their debt for them. And then they don't stand condemned if they accept or believe in him. That's one model. By the way, with that model, think about this. If um, somebody owed you 100 bucks and you demanded that that 100 bucks be paid back to you, they couldn't afford it. But you allowed someone else to pay their debt for them, and they have a cousin, a brother, that pays 100 bucks. Would you then be able to say, after you receive the 100 bucks from the brother to the person who owed it, it's okay, I forgive you your debt? Would you? Well, do you understand that people claim God forgives us our debts? Why couldn't you? Well, because your debt has been paid. There's nothing to forgive. There's nothing to forgive once the debt's paid. You don't, you're not owed $100 anymore once the brother pays the $100. Right, so you can say to him, your debt's been paid. You're not paid, forgiven. 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 If you forgive the debt, then you don't collect the debt. If you forgive the debt, do you collect it? No. No. And do you see how we teach in Christianity that God forgives our debts, but he collected it also? You see the inconsistency there? It doesn't make sense at all. Yes. But Jesus himself in his prayer, the, the prayer, the Lord's prayer said, forgive us our debts. Absolutely, God does forgive our debts, but he didn't collect one. That's the inconsistency. He absolutely forgives our debts, but he did not collect one. He didn't collect it from Jesus on the cross? See, that's the theory. That God was up there demanding a lifeblood payment from his son, was he? No. no. Oh, what was needed for our salvation? A remedy. A remedy, a healing. See, when, when man sinned, what was the problem that man's sin caused that the plan of salvation was designed to fix? God's character was defaced. Separation, fear. Say that louder. God's character was defaced. It was defaced where? In our minds, like our portray. I mean, our minds, hearts, characters. We were so. So when man sinned, did God get changed in some way? No. Or did man get changed in some way? Yeah. 
So the solution or remedy is it to somehow do something to God to get God to be different than he is. In other words, to get an, a severe, vengeful, and angry, wrathful God to become a loving, gracious, and forgiving God. Is that what was needed? Christ needed to die to give blood to his Father, so his Father now moves from wrath to grace. Or... Was it that mankind needed to be regenerated, recreated, healed, restored back into godliness? Yes. Yes. Can I get you? I'm sensing this is deep. My mind is shallow. We've got four minutes left, and I'd love to ask you again. Okay. Do you want me to, to restate that? Okay. Well, yeah. So the the other model. Let me just give the other model. The other model is when man sinned, they actually became changed in nature, in character, no longer in harmony with the law upon which all life is based. Life is based upon the law of love. That's how it's created, designed to operate. Okay? And if you step outside of that law, then there is no life except artificial, artificially sustained. For instance, life is designed to operate with respiration. Okay? We're designed to breathe. That's part of our design. If you put a plastic bag over your head, life cannot continue unless somebody artificially puts a trach in and puts you on a ventilator. Okay? Then you can continue artificially to live, but that's not the natural way God designed things to be. On this planet right now, love is not an operation except God's grace is working to pour love into this planet to hold at bay the selfishness which is destroying this planet in our hearts and minds. And so... The conceptualization I have is an HIV-infected man and an HIV-infected woman get together and they have a child born HIV-infected. What did the child do to deserve that? Nothing. You see, what did any of you do to deserve to be born into sin? Nothing. It wasn't your choice. It wasn't my choice. It's not our fault we were born this way. However, the child who was born HIV-infected, do they have the entire burden of the disease to deal with? And if something isn't done to cure them, if something isn't done to remedy them, if something isn't done to, to, to remove that infection from their being, will it kill them? Yes, that's us. We're, it's not our fault, but something has to happen or we're going to die. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death, James chapter 1. And so Christ came to remedy the situation, to actually restore in mankind what no longer existed in mankind. The Father was not re- demanding the life of Christ no. to cover no. our sins. No. 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 Never. That's what I heard said, and that's the part... Hebrews, Hebrews 9.22 is, is, is a text that often is cited for this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We, we all heard that. You say remission is a forgiveness of sin. It's not. It's not. Uh, if your child had cancer and they went to, to get cancer treatment, you would want that cancer to go into... Remission. remission. You want the cancer cells to remit back to their precancerous healthy state. Without the shedding of blood, true, without Christ's death, absolute necessity. Don't anyone leave here saying that Dr. Jennings said that Christ didn't have to die for us. Absolutely wrong. Christ had to die. We could not be saved without Christ's death. But the meaning is, without the death of Christ, our characters could not remit back to the original condition God created Adam and Eve to be in the Garden of Eden. It's the restoration, the regeneration process. So Christ's death was not needed to pay his father for God so loved the world, he gave his son. We just read it. Who was it that loved the world? God. God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, Romans chapter 8. I mean, all through the Bible, God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. In other words, changing the world back into harmony with him. This other model has it just backwards from the truth. That God was the problem. God needed to change. God, And some even go so far as to say, God actually executed his own son. Now think about the meaning of this. We've, we've offended God. We broke the law. God's mad at us. 
righteously mad. I mean, the righteous anger, of course, not the human anger, but the righteous anger. Okay, let's get it right now. The righteous anger. So we want to be back in his good grace. We don't want him to be angry at us. I know what we'll do. When he sends his son, we'll kill his son, and we'll offer him the blood of his son, and then he'll be happy with us. Huh? Isn't that what's taught? His son comes, we kill him, we offer him the blood that we've taken, and now he's happy with us? Well, because of that traditional sacrificial system. Exactly. It's paganism. It is paganism. That's right. So taking place by God? No. The sacrificial system actually was designed to teach something that's in my book, and that is the law of love is the law of life. All life operates on the principle of love, the principle of giving, the never-ending circle of giving. And when you confess sin on the head of an animal and you cut the animal's throat, you cut the circulation, you cut the circle of life. And when you cut the circle of life, death ensues. It was just an object lesson to teach why we die because we're separated from our circle of life, which is a circle of love that comes from God. It's supposed to flow through us out to others, and we're back in harmony with the circle of love. Life is based on sacrifice. Yes, yes, right here. So, Jesus second death. Ah. Okay, I haven't been to this class. No, 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 no. The second, no, 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 it's a great question because lots of people have it. Yes. Well, and and he's got it. This is, I mean, this is the way I understand it is, is God withdrew, in other words, let go Jesus because he was bearing all the sins of the world. And that's what killed him. Yeah, did God kill him? No. Uh, Good, good for you, exactly right. You know, it was the experience of being without God. Now, the second death experience, a lot of people equate with what Christ went through. Um, And then they look at the wicked in the end. But let's compare those experiences. And you'll find that there are great differences between what, what the wicked will experience and what Christ experienced. Did Christ die longing to see the face of his Father? Yes. yes. Will the wicked die longing to see the Father's face or begging for the rocks trees to hide them from him? Did Christ die trusting his Father? Yes. Will the wicked die trusting God? No. Did, did Christ die, uh, and I think the key one, there are several other differences, will the wicked die for 72 hours and then rise again? No. Uh, did Christ die for eternity? No. no, and if the actual payment for sin, think about it, the payment, the, the payment for sin is eternal death. Did Christ pay that payment? No. No, he didn't. It's not paid, okay, if it's a payment model. But the most telling thing for me is this. Christ died when love overcame selfishness because no one can take my life. I give it freely. Uh, so Christ died overcoming selfishness with love because he was being tempted to save himself, remember? If you're the Son of God, take yourself down off the cross. Save yourself, save yourself. Love overcomes selfishness in Christ's death. But in the wicked, they die when selfishness overcomes love in their life. Two opposite experiences, not the same thing. So what you find in Christ is the remedy for selfishness, love overcoming selfishness in a giving of oneself without reservation. And thus, those who are ready to meet Christ when he comes in the end, in Revelation chapter 12, are described, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. That selfish need to protect self is, over, is gone. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Christ gave his life for us, and we ought to give our life for others. Is that regenerating, transforming process that Christ came to do in this planet, in this species, to restore us back into unity with God.
And that's what the death of Christ was necessary for. It could not have been accomplished in any other way. And I know we're out of time, so we're going to close with prayer. And if anybody has any questions, we'll be glad to do that so the others can go on. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have sent your Son to bring us the truth about you, to win us to trust. But you also sent your Son to actually remedy our sick condition, to purge that infection that tempts to self from our hearts and minds, to restore your law of love perfectly. In his life on earth, he developed and, and lived a perfect life in harmony with your law of love, and now he offers to share it with us. And we can, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, become partakers of your very nature of love. And we open our hearts now and ask that you will pour out that new covenant experience, as Hebrews 8 describes, writing your law of love in our hearts and minds, that we can become one with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.